There we go. Turn with me to Acts chapter number 8, and we're going to, this will be the last Sunday for a few Sundays that we'll be in Acts uh, since next weekend actually will be Thanksgiving week, Scott. We'll we'll look at uh, biblical ideas about gratitude and uh, being thankful, and then it's Advent, uh, beginning that following Sunday, we'll look at a series of messages about uh, the incarnation. And I know, you know, I have pastor friends that... um, you know, struggle because it's repetitive to go through Advent for like five weeks. But I just am always blown away by the miracle of incarnation and uh, can't talk about it enough. The concept that God became a human and he uh, clothed himself in flesh and and blood to come here to us, to rescue us. That's what we're going to think about through December. And I'll challenge you, be here every week and uh, participate in this celebration of incarnation together. That um, Sunday, you know when December the 2nd is? It's not next Sunday or the next Sunday, or or it's not any Sunday actually. It's the third Saturday from now. It's only three weeks away when we do the Christmas party. So for perspective, we said we need an events team. And not just for that uh, Sunday event, Saturday event, but for all the events that we do, we need organization around that. So far, Jasmine told me she's interested in being on the events team last week. So that's awesome. Dot, I think, is going to help with the events team. Susan is going to help. And Kathy, yeah, that's what I heard. So don't be trying to back out now. Okay, awesome. So that's that's what we need is people that will step up and help us to have a, a good event. So, and not just that event, but each of the events we do, fifth Sundays and uh, some of the other issues or uh, times we'll have during the course of the year. So I encourage you to uh, help out as you're able. Figure out your place because God's got a place for each of us. As far as the on-ramp class goes, it will be offered again and again. So I'm going to offer it again really soon um, because I hope you'll think if you haven't already taken the step of membership about taking the step, learning what it means to belong to a family where you're committed. It's just really a formalizing of your commitment. But it's important. Jonathan did an excellent, excellent job of laying out why, why that matters. So encourage you to be thinking about that, praying about it. One of the things that you do in the new member uh, class is to uh, learn how to express your testimony. And we, the premise about church is that members are regenerate. They're people who have been born again. And so it helps you to think about what is my testimony? How did God save me? And sometimes what uh, you experience is that people will go, you know what, I, I'm, I haven't completed that journey. I haven't said yes to Christ and received his forgiveness. And so it's very important. We're going to be doing it soon. If we don't have uh, folks participating on the 19th, we'll do it again uh, sometime in the next couple of weeks when it works out for people to be able to participate. All right, Acts chapter 8, beginning with verse 1, the Bible says there, Now Saul was consenting to his death. At that time, a great persecution arose against the church which was at Jerusalem, and they all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. So when it says Saul was consenting to his death, this you know we had a guest speak last week, enjoyed uh, getting to know Brian and Elizabeth so much. 
uh, as they came and shared. But what, what we had talked about the week prior to that was Stephen was martyred. Stephen, one of the deacons that had been, we assume he was a deacon, that looks like the uh, offices that they had called, the people that they had called into ministry to the um, the widows uh, at, at that time. Stephen gives public witness to Christ. It is not well received. He is stoned to death. He's martyred. And Saul, it says, if you remember, that the they laid their clothing at the feet of Saul, which was a some some would say a symbol of his authority. He was, uh, of course, the scripture says here he was in hearty agreement. He gave uh, approval to this stoning of of Stephen, the this martyred witness of Christ. And then it says they began to be scattered. And and devout men, verse 2, carried Stephen to his burial and made great lamentation over him. As for Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering every house and dragging off men and women, committing them to prison. Therefore those who were scattered went everywhere preaching the word. Then Philip went down to the city of Samaria and preached Christ to them. And the multitudes with one accord heeded the things spoken by Philip hearing and seeing the miracles which he did. And, and Philip is another one of the seven who had been called to be a uh, deacon, a servant of the church and of the widows in the church. And so if you recall that, uh, here we have a second of those servants who is not only acting in waiting uh, tables, but he's an active evangelist, a witness, is, uh, taking the gospel to, to uh, Samaria. And so... The multitudes with one accord he did the things spoken uh, by Philip hearing and seeing the miracles which he did. For unclean spirits crying with a loud voice came out of many who were possessed and many who were paralyzed and lame were healed. And there was great joy in that city. But there was a certain man called Simon who previously practiced sorcery in the city and astonished the people of Samaria claiming that he was someone great to whom they all gave heed from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the great power of God. And they heeded him because he had astonished them with his sorceries for a long time. But when they believed Philip as he preached the things concerning the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, both men and women were baptized. Then Simon himself also believed, and when he was baptized, he continued with Philip and was amazed seeing the miracles and the signs which were done. Now when the apostles who were at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent Peter and John to them, who, when they had come down, prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For as yet he had fallen upon none of them, they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Then they laid hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now when Simon saw that through the laying on of the apostles' hands the Holy Spirit was given, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, that anyone on whom I lay hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, Your money perish with you, because you thought that the gift of God would be purchased uh, what could be purchased with money. You have neither part nor portion in this matter, for your heart is not right in the sight of God. Repent, therefore, of this your wickedness, and pray, God, if perhaps the thought of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are poisoned by bitterness and bound by iniquity. Then Simon answered and said, Pray to the Lord for me that none of the things which you have spoken may come upon me. 
So when they had testified and preached the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem preaching the gospel in many villages of the Samaritans. Father, we're grateful for the Bible. Thank you again for this narrative, this account that was passed along to us to show us how to follow you and to understand you and to know your ways. God, to show us how to have salvation and forgiveness. God, to show us how to live for you as witnesses of your resurrection. And we pray, God, that just as they were convinced and convicted to the extent that their life was ordered under you as Lord, that we would do the same. God, we would follow you as Lord. God, that we would listen to you and obey you. And we pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Well, what you see in this passage this morning that we're going to look at is examples. Really, it's interesting that you'll see that first the people believe Simon, the magician, the sorcerer, and then they believe the apostles and their preaching, Philip and his preaching. And so there are two kinds of belief or faith that are shown to us in this passage, and we can we see it illustrated in the people of Samaria. And the Bible works this way a lot of times. What you find is that there are contrasts, that the Bible will show us in contrast correct or right ways of thinking and believing, and then errant ways to, to think about God in the world. And so that's what I saw when I read through this passage is why, what, why do we get this account about Simon? Why does it seem a little confusing that there's belief? They, they believe him, and then what does he do? He believes, right? But what kind of belief does he have? Because eventually uh, Peter comes to authenticate what's happening because that's the movement of the book of Acts. He comes to authenticate whether the salvation experience that's occurring among the Samaritans is genuine or not. Is this God or not? That's what's happening through the apostles. And when he gets there... This, this man, Simon, also believes. But what kind of belief is it? Because later when Peter comes to authenticate it, he rebukes him. And he says, something's wrong with your faith, right? So there, what we see is that there is a kind of belief that, that's not authentic. That if it, if it is examined, it doesn't match what God says ought to be true about the kind of faith that saves. So that's what in this passage we are going to look at today. What is authentic faith? Well, as the Christian movement grew, one of the ways that we knew that it was authentic is because it attracted persecution. They, it attracted opposition. And so the, their stand for Christ was costly. I think it's hard for us to get this in the modern Western church today. You know, we're so far removed from the idea that we might be interfered with in, as we live out our faith. That never happens. You know, part of it is because we live in a country that the model that was chosen was religious tolerance. So we've had religious tolerance for hundreds of years, and it's hard for us to conceive of the idea of us being interfered with as we leave home. I left home. Uh, there were no blue lights behind me. I fully anticipate nobody's going to barge in the doors and stop us from doing what we're doing today. It's just not how the world works in the West. And a, a part of that that becomes difficult is it's easy for us to forget that other people in the world currently do live with that reality right now. 
there are people who are living with that reality, or that the apostles in the first century would face that kind of opposition to them just practicing their faith and bearing witness to the resurrection. Well, no matter, we see that they were arrested, and we remember what they said. You can threaten us, you can beat us, you can kill us, but we as a people, as a movement, are only going to continue to give witness to what we've seen because they saw Jesus raised. And we believe on the basis of their testimony that Jesus was raised, but they saw the resurrection. And so even though opposition came, they were so convinced of the truth of Jesus' resurrection because it was their eyewitness experience that they would face arrest. They would face displacement. They would pl- uh, face death. Think about, you know, you, you're, I'm assuming, pretty comfortable where you are. I am. Today when I go home, my plan is to put on even more comfortable clothes and not do much of anything on this dreary, rainy day. Eat a little bit and hang out in a comfortable place. But think about being displaced, having authorities put so much pressure on you simply because you believe in Jesus that you have to take whatever possessions you can get your hands on and leave home and go somewhere where hopefully that same pressure is not going to be your reality when you move. It's hard to think about that, isn't it? It's not, our, it's not something we relate to easily. That was their life. That was what was happening in their life. The, the pressure became so severe to either turn away from Jesus and shut up about him, or you've got to get your stuff together and hit the road and go find some place that violence and death and arrest maybe don't wait for you there. So this is the context for belief in their, in their day. It was with great joy that they were seeing God break the chains that held people. When the, when the gospel goes to Samaria, spiritually oppressed people are being set free. They are finding forgiveness of their sins and their guilt and condemnation. And they, when they go to Samaria with the good news, which we know Samaria is north of Jerusalem, it's a mixed group of people. It was people who were partly Jews, and they held to some of the belief of the Jewish people. But the reason that Jews and Samaritan had tension is because they also had intermarried during the exile. And they were calf worshipers during the days of Solomon and Jeroboam his, uh, and his sons. And uh, so you had the divided kingdom. And during the time of the divided kingdom, Samaria was the center of worship for the ten tribes. The two tribes that stayed faithful mostly to God, were Jerusalem was their center. But there was a religious tension that existed. We know Jesus began to approach it during the time of his ministry. You remember the story in the Gospel of John chapter 4 that Jesus goes, I think it's chapter 4, and he encounters the Samaritan woman at the well. And he he, uh, talks to her, and they talk about this whole religious dynamic that's happening. But Jesus took his disciples there, and they are really kind of wigged out about it. Like, Jesus says, I need to go to Samaria. 
And so that's what they do. They go to Samaria, but Jesus has begun to pave the way for this ministry that now Philip goes, it's mind-blowing that Philip would just go, I'm going to Samaria with the good news because all of that tension still existed, but now it's they begin to understand that the, the good news, the gospel, isn't just for the people in Jerusalem. It's not just a local thing. That God's purpose has always been from Abraham. He said that through your offspring, I'm going to bless what? Everybody in the world. All the nations of the earth, through your offspring, Abraham. So he made him a nation specifically so that the good news that God came to us and God loved us would come to you and me in U.S. America in 2023. That was always God's intent, that the good news would go everywhere in the world. God only has one plan for all people to be saved. And so he he was doing that, and it had to start somewhere. It goes to from Jerusalem to Samaria. We see that it went up to Antioch, where we're going to see more about that later in the book of Acts. And then from Antioch, it begins to go into Macedonia, into Asia Minor, into the Roman world. But it starts because people were made uncomfortable. They were made uncomfortable, so much so that they had to move and leave their home. And so as we see, God is authenticating the Holy Spirit's work, and we'll see that in this passage But we can see as we look closely at this scripture the ways that faith shows up when it's real and the way some of the problems with faith professed by people that when it's examined, it it turns out not to be real. It's not real in the life of uh, the kind of feature person in this narrative. So first in the passage, what we see is that authentic faith attracts opposition that's what happened they are persecuted and then as we think about uh, this is such a powerful story we're going to see it in full in when we get to acts chapter 9 with Saul's conversion story but the the fierce rage turns to radical grace and I'm going to jump ahead just a little bit because that's not what you see in this story but we know it's coming with Saul Saul is featured in this description of the events that are taking place because later on something radical is going to happen in his life. This person who has been arresting and persecuting and imprisoning uh, the, the believers is going to become a preacher of the gospel. He's going to become a missionary, the foremost missionary. He's going to become a theologian of Christ and the, of the church and write All these beautiful letters that we get, the epistles in the New Testament like Romans and 1st and 2nd Corinthians and Ephesians and all this information that we take for granted, Philippians, all these letters that we live by, God is going to use Saul who at first is a violent opponent of the church. And so he becomes a a trophy kind of, of grace is the way I've heard other people put it. And what it shows us is that there, I think about this sometimes. There are people in our families that we think, no way that person is ever going to be a believer. Is there anybody in your family you think that about or a friend that you have? There are people I know, I, that's, I, don't, I know that that's not a correct way to think, but they seem so far from God at times. And, but then I think about Saul. Here's this person that is uh, uh, violently taking people off to punishment, to death, 
And that's his fixed conviction. And God so radically changes his life that he, he, I think when he thought about himself later on, we know that he wrote in the pastoral letters and he, he talked about being the chief of sinners. Remember that? He says, Christ came to uh, save sinners of whom I am chief. I think probably he's, he's looking back on this period of his life. Before coming to know Christ, when he, so his heart was filled with hate. But it, isn't it an encouraging thought to think that God could take someone whose heart was so filled with hate, so full of malice, so committed to violence, and turn that person into someone who loves God and loves Christ and understands clearly what the gospel is all about. I mean, the thing that it says to me is, like, keep praying for that person who you think there's no hope for. Keep praying for that person that you think is so far from God because God's capacity to transform and to change is radical. He, he has the ability to take the good news and to bring his spirit into a person's life and to make them a different human being. If anyone is in Christ, he's what? A new creation. The old passes away and the new has come. And, and so... That, to me, in this story, as we think about like what authentic faith is, I, I want to think about how God can transform and change people. And we see that the church here shows uncommon devotion to their uh, deceased brother, to, to Stephen, the martyr. The, it was the act of taking him to burial is an incredible dis- display of affection for him as a follower of Christ and respect and honor. In their grief, they pay tribute to him. In Jewish law, a person who was stoned to death was not to be grieved publicly. So what they do is contrary to law, but right from God's perspective. And these devout men made great lamentation, it says, while Saul was making great havoc. They make, and, and it's an intentional literary device that the writer uses. I love Acts because it's beautifully written. It's, it contains so much, and I, I like the maritime parts of it. They're fascinating to me too. But it's so well written. But what you get here is really a literary device that on the one hand, Great lamentation. Right down here, great havoc, great destruction. So this is the context for what they are living in. And then we see in the passage, too, that Satan is unleashing, intensifying persecution. I think about that, you know, our faith, persecution. I've used the phrase a lot of times, soft persecution, to describe our experience. If we experience opposition, if we're uh, vocal enough and public enough with our belief that anybody even knows we are a Christian, which hopefully we are, you know, hopefully our faith is front and center in our life to the extent that people know we're actually following Jesus. And if so, occasionally our faith is going to rub people the wrong way. The fact that you stand for something that you say is absolute because that's what the gospel says about Jesus. He says, he doesn't say I'm a way, does he? 
He doesn't say, I'm a truth among many truths. He says, I am the way, the truth, the life. And when you believe that in a culture like ours, sometimes it will attract opposition. And it should. Your life and my life sometimes should stand in such stark opposition to the evil in the culture around us that people push back against us. And what they're really pushing back against is Jesus. You remember that Jesus said, if they hated me, guess what? They're going to hate you too. But it's not us they hate. It's, it's the, what Jesus says and what he says about himself. We've looked at this passage uh, before recently, but it's worth thinking about again because this is what Jesus said. This is the verdict. This is the trial that people are in. That light is coming to the world and people love darkness instead of light because their deeds are wicked, their deeds are evil. What is it about Jesus that upsets people so much? It's the fact that he says, I'm the light of the world. There is a way that uh, you live by that means that you order your life under my rule, under my reign. Oh, I don't get to be in charge of my life anymore? No, not if you're following Christ. You forfeit that. You say to him, you are Lord. Romans 10, 9 and 10, that if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. In other words, the only way to be saved is to say no to your selfish self and yes to Jesus is Lord. You say, you're the Lord. That if we confess with our mouth, who is Lord? Bobby? No. I'm not Lord. I try to act like it sometimes to my shame. But Jesus is Lord. And that's the acknowledgement that every person makes to truly be in relationship with Christ. And so there, it says there that people love darkness instead of light because their deeds are evil. So we're going to stay away from the light because we don't want our stuff to be revealed. We don't want to be accountable. But look at what the scripture says in Hebrews 4.13. This is the problem. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. There, the, uh, the word for that in theology is that God is omniscient. You probably heard that word, right? Omniscient. Uh, in other words, not, because he's a different order of being, nothing is hidden from his sight. There's nothing that we do anywhere at any time that God doesn't have a consciousness of. Well, the beautiful truth of the scripture is that even though God knows all the stuff about you and me, he loved us so much that he made a provision for our sin to be forgiven and to be cleansed. He sent his son into this world so that we could be rescued and forgiven and given hope. And so even though God knows everything he still loved us enough to send his holy son to come here for us unholy people. The one who knew no sin became sin for us that, the, that we might become the righteousness of Christ in him or the righteousness of, of God in him. To be made right with him is what it really is saying. So their faith, the way, one way that they knew that it was real is because it rubbed people the wrong way. Now, you can rub people the wrong way and just be obnoxious, you know. It's 
not necessarily an evidence that you have an authentic faith, but in this case, what the problem was was because they stood for Christ and his reality, that ruffled feathers. It caused people to feel their, their condemnation. And the truth is we are condemned until we're not. And the only way that we're not condemned and judged is that we receive the forgiveness that comes from the righteous judge. That righteous judge, when we receive him by faith, becomes our advocate. Isn't that good news? That the righteous judge, the one that could condemn you, says, I forgive you instead. And he, he releases us and sets us free. So that's what we see in this account to begin with. But secondly, in the passage, we see that authentic faith makes us personal witnesses. That's what they became. They went... They went everywhere because of the persecution. They had to leave home. They were experiencing these intense circumstances that required them to hurriedly leave. And as they went everywhere in the Roman world, they took this message of Jesus and his forgiveness. I love how it's put in the message, the paraphrase of the Bible called the message. It says, forced to leave home base, the followers of Jesus all became missionaries. That's good. I like it. It's a paraphrase, but it's right. That's what happened. Someone wrote a book. I remember seeing this title. I didn't read the book, but in the 90s called Out of the Salt Shaker and Into the World. That was what was happening. What are we? You are the salt of of the earth. That's what Jesus says about Christians. You, you are the salt of the earth. And this persecution caused them to be shaken out of the salt shaker and put out into the world. And wherever they went, they were witnessing to the resurrection. Because how could you not? If, the, if you believe that Jesus is God, that God had a human existence, that's, all, that's what the Bible teaches, God had a human life. He was born in the womb of virgin. We're going to sing all about this for all of December. That God became a human. That God came here in the womb of a virgin. That he was born into this Jewish family. And that God himself grew up to be the only sinless human. And that God himself took our place on a cross. And that God himself was placed into the ground, into, into a grave. And raised on the third day. How could there be a more compelling truth in your life than that? If that's what you believe. I think the problem, this is the problem I see when I read Acts, is there's this distance between that experience to our contemporary life and our experience. And, our, and, and if faith is authentic for us, I think it, has, it feels like as heavy a, and, and as a definite and as true a thing for us as it did for them who handled his hands and who went to the grave to see if they could Uh, do whatever you did for the dead on the third day and found, wait a minute, he's not here. And an angel is standing outside the grave and said, I don't know why you're even looking for the dead, uh, the dead, the living among the dead. That's what he says. Why are you here looking for the living among the dead? He's not here, he's risen. And if that's what we believe, how can there be a more compelling idea in in your life that guides you? And that influences what you do. And for them, they left home 
But that it wasn't that they just went seeking safety, which we'll talk about. I think, it, you know, it seems obvious that God permitted persecution. Maybe the persecution was just a natural outcome for what was, you know, happening. But God permitted it for sure. And it prevented complacency. It might have been that if they weren't persecuted, they became complacent. You know why I think that? Because I observe North American Christianity. Where we're not persecuted, but we're also very complacent. If we're honest. And, and, and so I don't know if complacency would have kept the church from its mission, but I do know that it often does keep the church from its mission. Persecution moved them out of Jerusalem, and as they were going, they went all over the Roman Empire with the message. And so that's the next part of this. In verse 5, the followers of Jesus obeyed his instructions. It says, then Philip went down to the city of Samaria. Well, what did Jesus say in Acts chapter 1, verse 8? He says, they asked him, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And Jesus said, it's not for you to know the times and seasons the Father has placed into his own care. He, but he said, but you will be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. So what we see is obedience in this passage. Philip heard Jesus on the Mount of Olives. He heard him say, you're going to be witnesses to me in Samaria, and that's where he went to Samaria to be a witness. A version of this command that Jesus gave is in all four Gospels and the book of Acts. In John's Gospel, it simply says, As the Father sent me, even so I'm sending you. He's sending us to be witnesses of the resurrection. So you think, I'm not a preacher. Doesn't matter. In fact, if all of the work of evangelism depended on preachers, think how few few of us there are compared to how many humans there are. That's why God commissioned each of us and sent each of us to be witnesses in our own sphere to the people that we know. And we struggle with that, but it is God's assignment to us, and it's emphatic and clear in the Gospels. I've shared this quote maybe before, Carl F.H. Henry. I like it a lot. He says, good, uh, the gospel is only good news if it gets there in time. The gospel is only good news if it gets there in time. In other words, there ought to be a sense of urgency we have to share. Do we believe the things that we say we believe? Do we believe that there's literally a heaven to gain and a hell to shun? That's what the Bible teaches. It teaches the wages of sin is death, alienation from God. And, and I know that personally, I don't always feel that urgency in the way that I should feel it for the people that I say I care about. So learning to relate to people this truth, even if like, you know, Jonathan shared earlier that little invite card, the little glossy thing that we made bunches and bunches of. I've, I've seen people say, you know, you want to do more than invite people to church. Well, listen, if you start there and you invite your friends to church and they hear the gospel and they come to know Jesus, you were involved in helping them hear this good news. So inviting people is very important. And being faithful in the way that we live is very important. 
And But then the Bible says faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. So people come to faith as they understand what this message is and embrace it for themselves in the same way that I did. Starting somewhere uh, in understanding what the good news of Christ says. Uh, I've got this commentary that says they do not go looking for a safe haven until the persecution subsides. They go with a strong sense of mission proclaiming Jesus as Messiah. I wonder, you know, if people came, I had to leave behind my home and stuff and just go with the, you know, things I could quickly pull together and leave. I wonder, would I be going somewhere to hide out, you know? Would I shut up? Well, that's not what they did. Where The next place that they went to, they also gave witness to Christ there. Wherever it was that they ended up, they, the, and that's how the message of Christianity spread in the way that it did across the ancient world, as rapidly as it did, Unbel- unbelievably quickly. And, they, and Jesus was setting people free. That was the, uh, what the good news, the power of it was. What happened when it went to Samaria is that it, it began to set people free. They found freedom. And I, I think it's so interesting when we think about Samaria as a place because this is a struggle that followers of Jesus have too. We have to love our enemies. Jesus said if you only love people that love you back, he says, well, you're no different than... The heathen, you know. He says everybody loves people that love them back, but what distinguishes Christians is that we love our enemies in theory. And and I think, who is my enemy? Sometimes the enemy feels very obvious to us, but for, I would say for us a lot of times the way that we perceive an enemy is may, probably they vote differently than I do. They vote for uh, different people than me, perhaps, or uh, they have a you know a different belief system. And we think about what an enemy looks like. They are people who cause us sometimes to feel frightened and threatened. That's who our enemy. You know, if we think about who is my enemy, well, the people that cause me to feel frightened and threatened, and the people that we post negative things about on uh, social media, a lot of times. Unfortunately, loving our enemies is advanced Christian behavior. Do we want to know whether or not we're embracing the way of Jesus? Then it, this is one of the ways. They went to Samaria, even though the Bible tells you clearly that the Jews and the Samaritans had tension. They hated each other, basically. But they went to their enemies. And, and so that, I think, we see about ourselves, there's a different way of perceiving people who behave differently than we do and think differently than we do. And a lot of times it's nothing more than them, you know, giving evidence to the fact that they have not yet found hope and forgiveness and cleansing in Christ. And God wants us to be part of the solution to to their lostness and their disconnection. So Philip didn't omit Samaria because of the difficulty. And the result was that people were finding true life through Jesus. Then the other uh, aspect of this where we see authentic faith probably is the bulk of it where we think about Simon and who he was. Simon the sorcerer. 
Simon the magician. And, you know, he, he had the ability to astound people. They were amazed at him. We've all probably seen illusionist, right? He, that's probably what he was like in his day. These guys that, you know, are out on the street sometime and they're doing these things, they're like, how are you doing that? I have no idea how this works. And the Bible says he had astounded people to the extent that they said he's the great power of God. And they believed him until they found something that was uh, more compelling and more convincing. So he practiced sorcery, which is probably a description of a occult practices, occult, which would account for the problems that he has because occult practices will cause problems because they're demonic, because they're attached to a malevolent, a malevolent that's a hard word to say, a, a wicked spirit. So he ha- what are the problems that Peter points out you know, for one thing, he has spiritual confusion because he thinks that the gift of God can be bought with money. He's spiritually confused even though he's a professed belief. He's a huckster down deep. That's what he is. He wants power because power he has seen is something that can be used to manipulate people. So if I have this power, I can use it for financial gain. He's poisoned by bitterness. That's what Peter says about him. We have to uh, think Peter understood and knew what he was talking about when he says you've got to repent because you are bound by bitterness and iniquity. So the gospel isn't power that we manipulate for self-gain even if much modern ministry is predicated on that belief. It is. Like a lot of the ideas of word of faith or the name it, claim it, the health and wealth and all that stuff that is, uh, it seems patently Western. You can't make a biblical argument for it. It comes from the idea that somehow we can use religion for financial gain. And that's, that in church history they call that simony. Guess why? Simony, because of this guy. Because he, he had a wrong uh, idea. But Jesus isn't smoking mirrors when we see what happens here. They find a real life-changing, transforming uh, uh, truth. And they turn the people in Samaria turn their back on this guy. So Jesus, when, when I think about who he is and what he, he does, he surpasses our former beliefs because everybody here believed that this guy was a, the great power. That's what it says. Until they found actual truth. And I thought about that, you know, for a practical way for us to think of this passage and what it's teaching. Everybody comes to Jesus with a set of a prior set of beliefs, predispositions or preconceptions that you had before you knew Jesus. And and they are the ways that we were trying to cope with life, a lot of us, or the things that we had just assumed were true until we found what was really true. Because Jesus, again, says, I'm the truth. There, if we come to Jesus, who, who are we coming to? We're coming to creator God. God who designed and put his imprint on the world, on people. So God 
is it, when the Bible talks about you and me as people, it says you're created in the image of God. The best life you could possibly live is one of surrender to God because that's where we live out the imprint, the, the model that God, the, what's in your DNA really? What God put there before fallen humanity, before the fall occurred and people were, were disobedient to God, that's the stuff that God resurrects and breathes life into and wants to be the pattern for our living. The only way we get back to that is through surrender, by saying yes to, to God, to stop behaving as if we are God. To stop behaving as if we, how could we think that we're enough, <laughs> that we, everything that we need is contained in who we are? I mean, that's a pretty unrealistic uh, perspective. And the Bible says it's nonsense, actually, and that, that what we need is who God is. And so, but I, I know that people come to God with a set of beliefs and ideas that are helping them to cope with what life means. I, I remember reading a book that talked about ontology, a word I'd never heard before. Ontology is uh, uh, the pursuit of meaning. Sometimes people, go, you know, approach it through religion or philosophy, but everyone is trying to answer the question at some level, what does life mean? If we can't answer that question, I don't know why we don't drift into hopelessness. But people are trying to Some people are existentialists. They say it means nothing. Life doesn't mean anything. I don't know how you live that way. But in, in Christ, what we're finding when he says, I'm the, the way, I'm the truth, I'm the life, is the answer to the question, what does life mean? Life means that God exists. He created you. He created you to worship him. And that, again, is the point where people catch a lot of times. Wait a minute. I'm supposed to worship? Yeah, you are. You're supposed to worship God. He made you and I to be worshipers of him. And that's what life means. And, you know, I remember hearing the word cosmology, which is just people saying, okay, we live in a universe I look up at night, I see stars and planets, and, you know, I am familiar with science, that there are scientific laws. But people are have a, a set of beliefs that they are trying to live by. When we meet Jesus, we find it all contained in him. He says, I uphold all things by the word of my power. With that, he, in, in him all things consist, the Bible says. Adhere, hold together. Only Jesus. That's where we find the truth that God has revealed. And so the, the scripture, I love this passage. I was looking it up this week because it explains why Jesus is indispensable. It says, no one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. When Jesus was explaining, this is in John uh, chapter 3, his conversation with Nicodemus. And he's trying to help Nicodemus understand who he is. And he says, I came from heaven. I'm the man who came from heaven. And so everything Jesus tells us is based on a reality that he's given us access to. He's bringing to our, uh, so we can know. Because God is not as people often portray him. 
disinterested, disconnected. He didn't just start the world and put it in motion and then say, okay, now you're on your own. He's personal and involved with us, and and he came to us in Jesus. And so, you, you know, he surpasses those former beliefs and also... He requires more than a mere profession of faith. This, and this is what we see in Simon. The Bible says about this gentleman in uh, the script, scripture here, verse 13, Simon himself also believed. But what kind of belief was it? He was also baptized. But what kind of baptism was it? When we look at him, he continued with Philip and was amazed by what he was seeing. This person who had been amazing people is now himself amazed by what he sees. But Jesus requires more than a mere profession of faith. Simon the magician believed, but it wasn't authentic. We know because of the things that Peter says to him later on, he didn't have the markers of a transforming faith. Many people have had a religious spasm. I had one as a kid. I've shared this, I'm sure. But like when I was around seven years old, First Baptist Church, Twin City, Georgia, vacation Bible school, made macrame art or whatever, you know, turn VBS all week long. My cousin Alan, who's just a little older than me and who is a little bit heroic in my world at that time, goes forward at the end of vacation Bible school, and I followed him down there. And both of us ended up baptized in a pond. But my whole life from age 7 until age 24 gave evidence to the fact that I did not know Jesus. I was, I'd gotten wet in a pond. The pastor, to his credit, I remember, took us into his office and, and uh, counseled us, but I did not have authentic regeneration. I was not born again. My life, the, the Holy Spirit, wasn't living inside of me until as an adult I became a follower of Jesus with understanding, repented, turned away from my sin, trusted Jesus to be my Savior, and guess what? I was baptized again as an adult because I understood the Bible taught believer baptism. So I was baptized as a profession of faith, as an authentic follower of Christ. So a lot of people have a religious experience, but they don't surrender their lives to Jesus as Lord. And what he asks of us is not mere intellectual assent, it's surrender. It's putting down our, laying down our rights completely. I, I know for sure when people come to faith in Christ, they have a ton to learn. Discipleship is that process of learning and growing. I had a lot to learn, but I did know in the very beginning that what it meant to follow Jesus was I had to lay down my rights. I had to give him authority and put my own authority aside. And so this is what's missing in this guy's faith. It seems obvious that it's not real, based again on what Peter says. And the scripture shows us that Jesus gives us his spirit to make this life supernatural. That's what makes a person born again, is the spirit coming to live in us. So the disciples, when they hear about Samaria, they send a contingent down there. Peter and other of the apostles go uh, to Samaria, Peter and John it says, 
Why did they go there? To authenticate this work because it was new. That's what the, the book of Acts in part is revealing to us is that this process of the gospel uh, going forward, well, there were often points where the, the uh, work is, the, the things, the way they happen are not meant to be once for all kind of things, but it's God authenticating the work. So in other words, okay, if you trust Jesus as your Savior, does somebody have to lay hands on you for you to receive the Holy Spirit? No. Because as you read Acts, even in the book of Acts, that's not always the way it happens. They just trust Jesus, and they're given the gift of the Holy Spirit. But in the first century, when the church was new, the work of God was being authenticated among the people. And so you see evidences like this that you can't go, okay, because that happened there, that's the way it always happens. It's not. But, but God, the thing that I think about this is that it shows us the supernatural work of God is critical to you being able to live as a Christian. When I think back on becoming a follower of Christ, one of the hesitations I had is, can I keep living this way? If I say I'm going to be a Christian, will I be able to keep living like a Christian? And it, it, it caused me hesitation because, you know, of course everybody is a hypocrite to some extent. Even authentic Christians at times are not consistent or we're not aligned in practicing the things we say we believe. But I didn't want to live as a hypocrite. And thank God it doesn't depend on my ability. If it depended on my ability, I would crash and burn every day. But it doesn't. It depends on God who is powerful, who says, if anyone loves me, I will come to him and I will make my home in you. I'll come live inside of you so that you don't have to worry about whether you can keep doing this because I'm going to keep doing it inside you. That's what he does. He keeps living the life inside of those who yield to him. And when I'm not living the life, he lets me know I'm not through the word and through conviction. And he teaches me and he opens the word of God to me and it compels me to, to live this life. So I'm grateful that's how it works and not uh, that, because the truth is, no, I couldn't hold out unless he lived inside of me. And Jesus changes us by grace. And we see in this passage that the, the problem with Simon, he wants to buy the uh, power to impart the Holy Spirit to other people. And that's contradictory to what grace even is. It's not something that can be purchased or earned or deserved. And it, it doesn't matter how generous a person is, you can't buy salvation. The poorest person can have it. In fact, the most poor person is probably more likely to have it. What did Jesus say? How hard it is, how difficult it is for a rich person to have eternal life. Because we just see, I need it. I need something I don't have. But he, he wants to purchase this, and, and Peter corrects him. When I read this passage at first, I felt a little sorry for Simon, the magician. I don't know how you read it. But I'm like, this dude, he seems a little bit in earnest. But what we find is that Peter is right to correct him because he's wrong inside, and Peter sees that he's wrong. The, the hopeful part of this passage to me, we don't know what happened to Simon the magician, the sorcerer, 
But the hopeful part of it for to me is that when he's rebuked, he says, pray for me that none of these things would happen to me. You know, it gives us hope that perhaps his heart is not completely hardened in his position. But Psalm 119.71 says, It was good for me to be afflicted so that I might learn your decrees. We think, how could affliction be good? It took the form of correction in his, in his experience, but in ours too. And Proverbs 1, say, uh, 7 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and correction or instruction. Sometimes we need people to speak truth to us that may feel difficult, but the Bible says, listen, if you don't respond to instruction, if you can't be corrected, that is the biblical definition of foolishness. A wise person can hear difficult things and order their life according to truth. So God often, when we read the Bible or just live life, will use crisis productively to funnel us to himself. That's exactly what God did in my life. It was crisis that brought me to an intersection where repentance and faith and hope all came together, forgiveness. It was because my life, the pain in my life became unbearable. I couldn't keep living the way I was living. Crisis, God often uses to make us aware of who he is and what his work is like. And everybody has to come to God on the terms that he commands. You don't get to make the rules up about what a relationship with God means. God decides that, has decided. He's revealed everything we need to know uh, uh, in order to know him and to grow in the knowledge of him. So how do we know if our faith is authentic? What can you see in this passage? Well, does it stretch you sacrificially and occasionally put you in uncomfortable circumstances? I think if, if it doesn't, our faith, it's unlikely that it's a biblical kind of faith. The biblical kind of faith, even I, I think about sometimes, it's not, um, it's not persecution, it's inconvenience that I'm more prone to push back against. Inconvenience. God says, go serve in this way, do this particular thing, and I'm like, I don't want to. It's not persecution, it's obedience, service, showing up and listening to God and doing what God wants me to do as a reflex, being obedient. So I think, like, is my faith real? If, if it doesn't push me into uncomfortable space sometimes, maybe not. Does it result in obedience in our life? Is there a sense of kingdom-focused mission? in our life. What when you think about what your life is like, what are you living for? Has faith softened your heart toward people who your natural instinct is to view as the enemy? That's what happened in this passage. Their natural instinct was to say we hate Samaritans, but they went there with the good news. Does it permeate everything? Is, is there no part of your life to which God uh, can't have access? If others were, listen, if others were asked to vouch for the genuineness of your faith, could they do so? If somebody else said, tell me about this person, are they real? Is this person authentic? What would they say? When you look at your priorities, is Jesus truly Lord? Do you have peace that your sins are forgiven? This is important. Can you say with certainty, I know that I have eternal life and I'll go to heaven when I die. 
The Bible says these things have been written to you who believe on the name of the Son of God so that you may know you have everlasting life. That assurance isn't based on being a good person. It's based on Jesus and the fact that he was a perfect person and he came here for us who aren't perfect people but who needed what he alone was able to do. So every one of us should be able to say, I know for certain that I have eternal life and that I'll go to heaven when I die, not based on me, but based on Jesus who paid it all, just like we sing. We're going to have our time of commitment now and encourage you as we have a song, as our praise team comes, if there's a need that you have for prayer or to respond, perhaps today to respond to this uh, appeal to the gospel to be forgiven and to receive Jesus. If you've never done that before, then everybody starts there with repentance and faith and with crying out to him. And the Bible says, it's so simple the way it puts it, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So today as we have this uh, time, if there's a need you have to uh, for prayer, to respond, I encourage you to do so. Stand with me if you would. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful today that as we see the scripture, we find there this message of hope. There's hope because even though all of us are broken and sinful and all of us have some in some way departed from righteousness and what's best, you still loved us so deeply that you came to us. I pray, Father, that you'll help us to truly examine our own lives and to see, is my faith authentic? Is it the kind of faith that, that's in Scripture that the Spirit of God has come to live inside of me to make me new? And God, I pray that it, you'll help us as we look to uh, your, your word for the answer. And I pray it in Christ's name. Amen.